to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Shannon. And we are your co-hosts. So today I'm diving into some of the and more section and talking about the magical creature, the manticore. Scary. Uh, The manticore freaks me out, uh, which we will talk about why. Um, But I'm talking about ladies mantle so this is a plant that has lots of like delicious grounding energy but also allegedly could help you find the philosopher's stone which hell yeah but i'm also doing for you nick an intro to a deity from ancient mesopotamia enki which is like guess what mesopotamian deities are fucking hard to cover because there's a lot of information that comes out over like nearly seven thousand years so well and i think i think something that people should keep in mind with stuff like this is if you take a more recent deity like let's just say artemis who we love and adore here at once and bronze how different groups of people worshipped artemis and this different kind of myths that come out of that um, and then you just multiply that by magnitudes of like extra thousands of years. Yeah. And it's like the Sumerian pantheon pantheon wasn't as big as the Greek one. So it's like the equivalence, the quote unquote Greek equivalence for like Sumerian deities. Sometimes it's like multiple deities that yeah. represent all of the shit that like one Mesopotamian deity was getting it up in. So yeah, the the Greeks are like chipping them down into smaller bits. Yeah, and I love that system because it's a lot easier to keep track of. Um, but Nick, I'm so sad that you're not here anymore. But tell me about when you felt magical this week because you've been home for like five minutes. Yeah, I have been home for exactly five minutes. Um, truth be told, I have not unpacked yet. But when I felt the magic this week, I have two. So the first is going to be when I came home, my greeting from my cats. I always feel especially sort of in my power when it comes to like my connection with my animals. Mm. Um, And they, they really did miss me. And it was almost like, you know, it's like people expect behavior like that from dogs. Yeah, people, I find that, like, not cat people do not give them enough credit. They don't. For being affectionate as fuck. Because they they are. are, They are affectionate as fuck. And so I really felt welcomed home. But I will also say, so I did this really cool thing where because I had taken so much time off for my vacation, um, I did not give myself a day to, to, like, properly recover um, on my way back, you know, like, basically, I came in at, like, 8, 9 p.m. and then was at work the next day. Yeah, I also, I mean, my vacation wasn't as long as yours, but I was also regretting that I didn't give myself a day after you left, because holy fuck, I was tired. But all of that to say, that day, particularly, it looked like rain, but um, it was not until the for- in the forecast until way later, and then it was supposed to stop before I got off of work, so I didn't bring my umbrella because, you know, I uh, I commute on foot a lot of the way, and then that's just extra space in my backpack being taken up by a big-ass umbrella. So yeah. I'm, I'm like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Of course, it starts, like, a, a monsoon downpour. Now, keep in mind, it hasn't rained in, like, 
several weeks, uh, perhaps even well over a month here in Austin. We're in a huge drought. But we were having this torrential downpour solely for the duration of my bus ride. And then it was like someone flipped a switch. And then when I got off the bus, it stopped raining. So I was like, okay. I love that for you. Love that journey for you. Um, I think for me, it was really like, so yesterday I spent like most of the day gardening because like when Nick was here, you got to see I had all of that soil and all the mulch and I'll have to like upload pictures and send you pictures because I really like went hard yesterday and like kind of cleaning up the little like herb, like not herb garden, my little like vegetable gardening area. And I planted a bunch of like cosmos and I planted some more um some more like black hollyhock and foxglove along the back wall I pulled up the cucumbers because it's just hit that point of the year where it's like too hot and things are getting crispy uh it's also like really humid in LA today it's like over 80 percent humidity so what a weird time but literally it was like I was so dirty I was like caked in dirt and a little sunburned and just feeling like I don't know. I was just like feeling my green witch magic yesterday because I love that. Like there's to me, there is nothing that makes me feel more magical than literally being like covered in soil and sweaty and uh, just like chef's kiss. It was like beautiful. And my pumpkins are flowering, which always helps. Uh, And I, I, I saw that and I'm so excited to see baby pumpkins and I hope I hope no one, especially not a bird or a squirrel, ruins ruins that for you. Oh my god, I put so much cayenne everywhere yesterday after I finished planting everything. Like literally, I'll I'll send you a picture after this, Nick, because everything is like red. It's like dusted in red because I was like, "Fuck you, squirrels!" <laughs> no, I, okay. For it. I mean, I know that it's like not date like you know. It's not unhealthy for the squirrels to, to get a little dose of the cayenne, but I do think it would be funny just to see with their spicy little hands, you know? Right. The good news is for anyone that, like, is a squirrel sympathizer, we'll say, because fuck them. Uh, they, they say that the squirrels and, like, other animals can smell the heat. So it's not hurting them. So calm down, fucking PETA chill out these assholes keep trying to ruin my garden like fuck off but let's get going because i'm actually excited to talk about ladies mantle so ladies mantle or alcamilla vulgaris is in the rosaceae family the rose family lovely little rose friend it's associated with the female reproductive system your gut your skin everything that makes you like a beautiful venusian goddess i just like Reading about Ladies Mantle, I get so much Libra energy. So I'm like, Libras, my friends, we're going to talk about how you can use this in beauty magic. And I'm just like loving this as a journey for y'all. So common names you'll see associated with it are Lion's Foot, Bear's Foot, Nine Hooks, Stellaria, and Greater Sanical, which... That last one's a weird one, but Greater Sanicles related to its like association with healing herbal properties during the Middle Ages. But I love Stellaria. Like also Stellaria sounds like a drag name. Oh my god. Like, yeah, Stellaria. <clears throat> like a witchy drag name. 
Um, <laughs> okay, so, but tell me, tell me why I would. Uh, I was like, what would you be like? And then my brain was like, Galexandria. Galexandria, Stellaria and Galexandria. They're they're are, drag sisters. Yeah, I'm like Katya and Trixie. Eat your heart out. Like, I'm here for it. Um, so so Ladies Mantle it grows really widely throughout Britain, Ireland, and Greenland, as well as mainland Europe and Northern Asia. But you can also find it in like the northeastern U.S. But like that, like Ireland is its its home. It loves it gives you some insight into how fucking hard it's going to be for a lot of us to grow it. But the plant is stunning, right? It has this like beautiful black rootstock, a straight thin stem that gets up to like a foot and a half tall. So it's not a super tall boy. We've been talking about a lot of like leggy plants. This is not one of them. Uh, the stem and leaves are all covered in these like tiny little hairs that catch dew drops, which we'll talk about. And the lower leaves are actually like kidney shaped and they get to like six to nine inches across. So the lower leaves get big. And they're cut into like seven or nine lobes with fine tooth edges. And the flowers that it puts off are like gorgeous. Like they're chartreuse. They come up in early spring, fade by midsummer. And they're like star-shaped flowers that don't actually have like petals, but a four-cleft calyx with like four um, small little bracteoles. So like if you imagine, it almost looks like from far away, it kind of looks a little bit like baby cauliflowers because it's just like these bunches of like tiny little flowers that like don't have petals. But up close, they are, they're like really, really pretty. Um, they are though really known for their leaves, right? Like the leaves are the showstoppers. They're silvery green and those tiny little hairs like catch morning dew. So they like sparkle in the morning sun. They're, they're having an Edward Cullen moment. They are like Edward Cullen and all of the Stephanie Myers fucking vampires are probably based off of Ladies Mantle. And the association with Alchemist here is like where the Latin name comes from, Alchemilla, because Alchemist would actually like collect the leaves and like turn them into little cups to drink the morning dew, which is said that it'll help give you the power to find the Philosopher's Stone. And I'm like, give it a shot. What's the worst that can happen? You don't have a Philosopher's Stone at the end. You don't have one now. Might as well look for it. Also, if you find it because of this, I feel like we get a finder's fee. So uh, it it's really like not going to be in the cards for most of us to grow it, though, because it, especially with climate change, it really wants to be somewhere that like feels like Ireland, right? Like it's not too hot or sunny. It wants to be a little damp. So I'm not going to be able to really grow it well out here in California, unless I work way harder than I can afford to, because I got other plants to take care of. We are also in a hell of a drought. But if you are somewhere that lives in like Ireland or somewhere that's like beautiful, bleh, you and your weather, uh, just keep in mind, it doesn't like to be crowded. It does really need like its own space. But let's talk about medicinal uses, shall we? So Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. I'm not a doctor. Nick's not a doctor. This podcast is not intended to treat or diagnose any medical issues. Just always talk to your medical care professional before you start on any sort of herbal regimen. Because remember, shit has weird interactions and only you and your doctor and hopefully your herbalist are going to be really well familiar with everything that you're on. So 
it was a very well-known herbal ally throughout the Middle Ages. And it was actually considered like one of the strongest wound healers, but it kind of like shifted into being a plant used primarily for like women's health during the Renaissance because it picked up the name Ladies Mantle because the like the folds of the leaves look like a woman's cloak, allegedly. I feel like we get a little loosey-goosey with what we say plants look like, but here we are. And so Linnaeus adopted the term like ladies mantle in 1532. A lot of this like kind of goes back to a translation from like Germanic herbal books into like English. And so Linnaeus adopts this like official term in the 1500s and onward from there, it's like really exclusively used for like reproductive health system stuff until, you know, a little bit more recently. So nowadays, Ladies' mantle is what Michael Moore, the herbalist, calls a yarfa, which is yet another rose family astringent and like herbalist humor. Am I right? Oh, yeah. Yarfa. yarfa. Um, <laughs> so it's helpful for uterine issues because it can like tone and tighten overly damp or like prolapse tissues and it helps dry like excessive bleeding or discharge. Uh, I also love this for people that have like IBSD, so IBS that manifests with diarrhea. And with that, it can be like a good background plant to use regularly to help like tone and tighten things because there are some people that subscribe to the leaky gut theory. Choose your own adventure there. Not everyone buys into it, but you know, it's one of those that I think you could add in with like more intense astringents from time to time but it's it's actually like really delicious it kind of tastes like it's got this like light tannic flavor almost like a green like a really mild green or a white tea you know it's like Ooh. not super strong but it's great with like I love the idea Nick this one's for you a tea of like ladies mantle lemon verbena and mint with just like oh a squeeze of lemon mm right because we all have those times when we get overly moist right which sounds gross but like that's what happens like sometimes you like you get a little upset tummy and you could use an astringent this tea especially if you like god there's nothing worse than having diarrhea when it's hot outside in the summer make this tea for yourself a little iced tea moment even yum, yes yum, exactly yum, yum. also though if you tend to run dry or you're someone who like gets constipated don't add this in because it can exacerbate that. Like if you're someone who runs dry, you're going to like want to be very cautious with astringents. That's not something I have any experience with because my tissues are just like, how moist can we be? But some people apparently run dry. Um, also, if you're pregnant, like it's this plant is generally considered safe for most people. But if you're pregnant and you're needing something that's like uterine toning, it's most often recommended to use like raspberry leaf instead of ladies mantle. So just like, again, work with your doctor, especially if you're creating a crotch goblin, because there's all sorts of weird shit you have to deal with there. So you do want to harvest the ladies mantle leaves and stems in early summer, just as it starts to bloom. And you want to like pick them when they're tender and it still has dew on them. Like you're going to go out and you're going to feel like a medieval alchemist harvesting this like dew covered leaf. I really wish I could grow it. And then you want to like spread them out to dry them on screens. And then you can use it primarily it's used in teas and with it being so tasty because I've had it dried with it being so tasty. I don't understand why you wouldn't just use it in a tea. That's just me. I'm a tea ho. Nick and I both are beverage we're, people. We're, we're both beverage people. I, I'm like beverage witches subset <laughs> of our witchcraft practices. 
Um, so let's talk about magic, though. Like, obviously, I love that this is like an alchemist plant, right? Like, I, I adore that. I'm obsessed. Alchemy, I think, is fascinating. And duh, it's a good magic friend because of that. So it's heavily associated with like Venus and the water element. It has these like really long standing historical associations with Freya, um, but also with the Virgin Mary, right? So like if you're a Christian witch or you work with the Virgin Mary iconography, ladies mantles associated with her as well. So it's like those goddesses, it has a lot of like fertility associations because of that. But that the Newsian side, you'll often also see it recommended for love magic. And there's so many recommendations to like drink the dew or apply it to your skin. And that's said to help like attract love and bestow everlasting beauty. So I've talked in the past about making makeup, like making magically infused makeup. I love the idea of harvesting the dew to use as like the water in one of these makeups that you make, like making a little like charcoal eyeliner with it, or even like adding a bit of it to like a smashed blueberry blush or lip stain that you're making, mm -hmm. like how hot is that? So again, though, there's like so much fertility magic with it as well though, which I think is a good, the fertility here I think would be good to think about as like relational fertility. So not necessarily having a baby, but like, having fertile relationships, friendships. Because again, I think love magic, so often we get hooked on romantic love, but it's like, dude, the love of friendship is one of the most nourishing things in your entire life. So- oh, I, you know, the, I just got to spend like a week with my bestie and I can confirm this. Nourishing. So, you know, make yourself a ladies mantle tea and like sprinkle in some of this. I also really like the idea of harvesting the dew and adding it to a pitcher of like moon water specifically. All I want is like dew harvested from ladies mantle added to a fucking gallon of water that you charge under a Libra moon. Like, fuck me up. That's going to be gorgeous. Add it to a beauty bath with some fucking like rose quartz on the edge of your tub. Sprinkle in some like ladies mantle flowers and rose petals and just like you will transform into venus like oh, you're yeah. just gonna turn into a fucking goddess um they do say though that like the flower essence is good for grounding and connecting to green magic so like high green witches some folks suggest like adding the dewdrops to your third eye area to help clear the way for prophetic visions but because it's associated with the fae i love the idea of using the dewdrops on your third eye to help you connect to the other world of course, fairies like the magical dew, so you can use it as an offering. But with this connection to like grounding with the flower essences, like even if you can't get the dew drops, because dew drops are not able to be obtained by everybody, you could like either make a flower essence with it if you have some of the flowers, because you can make dried flower essences, or make a tea with it, apply a little bit to your third eye, go out, commune with the fae. Like, love that wonderful love that. drink yourself some tea so again it's like this is one that kind of has like a lot of different uses but i love the tie-ins tie to like the other world green magic love and i think you can see where i'm getting like the libra vibes here it's like sensual but not necessarily sexual and i yes that's yeah i was like it's 
that's that's a good vibe. That's a good vibe. Yeah, it's beautiful. So um, my sources today were Herbarium, Grow Your Own Herbal Remedies by Maria Noel Groves, Cunningham's Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs, StarkChild.co.uk, and my lovely magical brain. So. Most excellent. Most excellent. And honestly, it's actually kind of nice to be back in like a normal episode. I know. It was it was wild. I feel like just having a small break, I think, was good. Because yes. I know we've been like, oh, this is episode 94, guys. We've been like working on this for a while. I think it was good to have a little break. But it is nice to get back to the research. And like that, this helps me root so much in my magic, too. So it's like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I was listening to, of course, I always am like, what do the other podcasts have to say when it comes to like deities and magical creatures? Because uh, A, I'm a nosy bitch. And B, it's just fun to do. It's it fun is. to do. Especially with something like the manticore. Uh, um, yeah. Just to kind of get that soft opening there. Um, because it's just, to me, anything to do with like monsters. I don't know. Maybe it's because as a little kid, like all the shows I watched, like Pokemon and stuff, were like battling. Like creatures battling or whatever like I'm always like manticore I want to I just imagine like the manticore fighting yeah manticores seem fucking brutal manticores seem brutal as fuck and I can't help but notice that manticore kind of sounds like a genre of like hardcore hardcore music oh to me I'm like porn is what I think of with manticore they scare me like creepy, scary, kinky, weird corner of the internet sex porn. Like, oh, you oh. know what? Well, un- unfortunately, actually, so, and this is, you know, before I'm getting into the actual segment, um, Manticore is apparently a brand of crossbow. So what the I fuck? Ha- so I had to filter out a lot of, um, crossbows for sale while while doing this segment oh my god that's Uh, so weird but um but also i love that in the medieval art the manticore always kind of looks like a goofy little guy he does but they're they're now you know manticores are in dungeons and dragons famously and a lot of um young adult fantasy series um one of which was written by a turf for instance. So, but now that they've come back around into like the modern fantasy realm, um, they're, they're kind of presented as more like badass and you kind of see like more winged manticores. Yeah. It's like the wings, I think, are the cool part of the manticore. The scorpion but, part terrifies me. The scorpion part is scary. The scorpion part is very scary. But it's also, but yeah, it's just like the goofy medieval art of manticores, like uh, medieval art of anything, like a dolphin. Oh, but I love like medieval artwork also uh, of things like tigers yeah, or they're... elephants, where it's like, you can tell it was a telephone game describing to them what these creatures were. And like, they all look derpy as fuck. Derpy, derpy, derpy. It's like, it's like, what makes you think that's what an animal's face would look like? Like, I don't, I just, I don't, I I can't, I can't, I can't, but no. we have to, we, we, we must keep going. So in order to tell the story of the Manticore, we have to go all the way back to the fifth century BCE 
which is an awfully long time ago, though not especially long for this podcast, especially with the segment coming up. But during this time, a Greek physician by the name of Catesius made a career for himself by serving as the royal doctor uh, in the court of Xerxes II in the exotic land of Persia. So keeping in mind that people walked everywhere back in the day, that is pretty far away, okay? So this was apparently a pretty cushy gig for Catesius because he did it for over 20 years. And keeping in mind that people died when they were 30 back in the day, that's a really long time for a guy to just be like in Mes or not in Mesopotamia, in Persia, just being a doctor. So he was yeah, there. Just doctoring it up. I mean, but I mean, truly in ancient times, 20 years could very well have been a lifetime, you know, easily. So he's there for a long time though. And more importantly, Persia is situated on what would later be known as the Silk Road. So not only is he getting this taste of Persian culture, which is an exotic culture if you are a Greek national at the time, but also you're kind of hearing these stories about places like mm. India, which according to the Greeks and the, the Greek map of the world, India was the edge of the world. So there's already this kind of mystical notation to India and then any creature that comes from India as see, is seen as magical and mysterious as well. So he's here, he's learning about these, these Indian folklores, these Indian stories, these histories even, and he wanted to share what he had learned. So obviously he didn't learn a lot about medicine in Persia, but he learned a lot about India. So he wrote a jazzy little manuscript called Indica, which was meant to be a kind of all-encompassing history of India for Western consumption. Weed! Like weed. the weed. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, it's fun because this might be the origin of the word Indica. So just saying, and, you know, we're here, we're queer. Um, so he writes Indica and the book is a hit and it becomes a common reference source for other writers and philosophers later on, including Pliny the Elder and Aristotle. So the part of this book that we're interested in today is the bestiary, which is a kind of catalog of creatures. So he writes this book, Indica, and it's like, here's the history, here's the folklore, here's all the crazy animals that live there. And that, I'm sorry is probably where a lot of those derpy ass animal pictures come from because indica was a very popular book and it was copied and recopied many times and i'm sure there is an illuminated indica manuscript out there somewhere but also i just like to think of the artists being fucking stoned off their ass while they're drawing those derpy looking tigers very very true very very true i I would be, I, I mean, I'm I'm like trying not to laugh thinking about it. I, I know. I'm like, can we all just go get, okay, every listener that indulges in cannabis only if it's legal, we're not telling you to break the law, get super stoned and draw a manticore and send us pictures because I just want to see what you come up oh with. Oh my Please. God. That, that, is a, that is a great challenge for the week. Okay. To all of Please, you out for there, the love of Please God. get high and draw a manticore. So 
the bestiary in Indica contains the manticore and a bunch of other real shit, like Asian elephants and white rhinos and various kinds of monkeys, which they thought was very exotic shit. I mean, it is exotic shit. We don't have monkeys here. So there's all these, but there's all these very, very real animals that he's heard about secondhand, but the manticore, which is a mythical creature, was supposedly one of the few animals that he actually saw in person. So that's, I mean, like full stop here. That I think is a very interesting layer to the story. So Asian elephants, he's hearing about secondhand, right? Tigers, leopards, panthers, all of this shit, which there are some very derpy tigers and leopards out there in medieval manuscripts, just saying. He's hearing about this shit secondhand, but the manticore was supposedly given to Xerxes II by an Indian prince as a gift. That's a terrible gift, by the way. Yeah, um, um, no one, no one thinks that that's gonna win you points. I mean, that's basically like, like getting a, a minotaur is a gift and you, you have to like build a massive labyrinth to keep it in or else it's gonna attack everyone. It's like, it's both a job, it's like a gift, but also a fucking job assignment. No, thank you. I for, yeah, it's like, no, <laughs> don't give me, don't give me chores. Chores is not a gift. So you have no. a fucking manticore to deal with. But no, so I think that's what really blew my mind about this whole thing is, yeah, he's like, the manticore was the thing that they brought for us to see. So you're probably wondering, what the fuck is a manticore? Okay, but we're going to get there. And we do have to give Catesius the credit, just to say here, that he does say that he just heard about a lot of this shit. Okay, I'm just, I mean, which to me makes actually seeing the manticore seem almost more more real because he's like yeah i've only ever heard about tigers like just so you guys know i never saw a tiger but i did see the <laughs> fucking manticore um but what is a manticore hold your horses it's so fun in the nitty-gritty of it all though a manticore is classified as a chimera so like the sphinx out of egypt or the sea goat of capricorn band this basically means that it is a creature with body parts of multiple different creatures, sort of a biological ragdoll or the god's own Frankenstein monster. Centaurs, also a chimera. There's a lot of chimeras in Greek mythology. So when you think of like satyrs, little, little goat dudes, that's a chimera, okay? But the manticore is creepier by several magnitudes than a satyr because it's the body of a red lion, the face of an old man, and the tail either of a scorpion or a dragon. And as if that was not a spooky ooky ooky enough combo, shark teeth, like multiple rows, three in most myths, three rows. Why? Of shark teeth. Spooky. Oh, and did I mention that it has like the detachable snake jaw so that it can swallow things whole? Outraged. Yeah, it could it can, uh, it can unhinge its jaw. So there seems to be some debate though about the manticore's voice and whether or not it sounds like a trumpet or a reed flute, which are very different sounds. 
but the consensus being here that it has magical luring properties, like a siren song or the music of the Pied Piper, which is why I kind of lean more towards like the pan flute. If it's Pied Piper vibes, I, I think it's probably more flutey. But that's conjecture, okay? Which, having a siren song though, is convenient for a hyper apex predator. And so keep in mind the whole thing about the apex predator, because I wanted to talk about that a little bit later on. So the manticore though, how did, how did such a creature hunt? And this I thought was spooky, spooky, spooky. So basically in the story that I had heard, the manticore would like crouch down. You know how cats crouch when they're hunting, right? And it has the body of a lion. So it's all crouched down, okay? So it's just the human face popped up over the edge of like a bush or something, like a bush or a wall. The fuck? That's haunting. And then it's got this, this sort of music. And so you follow the music and you see this little old man face sort of peeking at you over a hedge, for instance, or a fence, or wh whatever the manticore is using to conceal its true nature. And of course, you're, you're called, you feel like you should help this old man who's obviously out in the wilderness somewhere, right? And then once you get close enough, the tail comes out. And if you're close enough, it just can whip like a, like a scorpion's tail and just stab you with this like venomous poison that, that paralyzes you so that the manticore can then eat you with its terrifying unhinged shark mouth. Which, can you imagine, like, the little old man face, and then the jaw unhinges, and then the mouth is full of shark teeth? Like, that's scary imagery. This is why the Minotaur, not the Minotaur, oh my god. I'm just, I am so, so fucking freaked out by the manticore. Like, I, I love horror, but something about the manticore deeply scares me. It's, it's disturbing. It's absolutely disturbing. So... Also, supposedly, the manticore could regrow the spike on the end of its tail an infinite number of times and shoot it out like a projectile. So, it, so the, it's got a range weapon and a sort of a close range weapon. Project, it, projectiles. Like projectile stingers that then you're paralyzed and then it eats you in one big bite. So... Just some, just some nightmare fuel for everyone out there. Um, but then uh, how would you go about hunting a manticore? And so this is another interesting quarry story that comes out of India and the method for hunting a manticore. So there is one animal in the entire animal kingdom which is immune to the venom of the manticore and it is the elephant. And so, if you were hunting a manticore, you would do so while riding an elephant. And also it kind of gets you up off the ground, which is out of the shooting range. And so hopefully the elephant takes all the hits and you can try to try to kill it with a crossbow, which is probably why the crossbow is called manticore. I'm kind of putting that together in my head now. Um, or a spear. And also, really, they would try to go for baby manticores because adult manticores are basically impossible to kill. Like a Wendigo. Oh my god, the Wendigo! <laughs> yeah, so an, an adult manticore 
basically impossible to kill. So they would go try to go for juveniles, and you would do so on the back of an elephant. Um, so some great news there, if you were wondering. Um, and, and also maybe skin suit, don't get an elephant skin suit. Um, uh, yeah, no, but riding an elephant while hunting, as long as the elephant's okay, does sound kind of cool. It's very like Lord of the Rings. Like, I don't know. What? Okay. So I get it. I get it. So the manticore though, has these associations with basically being invincible and it becomes part of heraldic imagery. So this is the kind of shit you would see on people's flags, people like a knight's shield, etc., etc., etc. Royalty liked it because you know it's sort of like a like a gargoyle kind of a totem where you know you'd have this manticore imagery and that would be like protective, right? And also represent your that you as the ruler are invincible, but this kind of tilted more towards being tyrannical. So apparently people who liked using the manticore as their heraldic imagery ultimately tended to be more tyrannical, and so the manticore becomes associated with tyrants later on in this sort of journey of the heraldic meaning of the manticore. And actually, if you look at the heraldic manticore, they, you're, you're, you would be like, oh, that's fucking everywhere. Because a lot of flags and shield art and stuff features the stylized manticore, which is especially for this kind of art. But the manticore was also an important symbol of the prophet Jeremiah, who was famously thrown into a dung pit. Um, something about how manticores come from the depths of hell and, like, Jeremiah getting thrown into a dung pit was, like, I guess close to being in the depths of hell. But, okay, so it's, it, the manticore myth lingers around in Europe for a long time. And again, Indica was a very popular book, basically a New York Times bestseller. And where does it linger but in Spain. Now, this makes sense to me because ultimately it pro- this book would probably have been translated to Latin first, which was the official language of Spain for a very long time and ultimately became Spanish, which is a Latin-based language. Hello. Uh, but it ends up becoming the only place that still had like local legends about manticore attacks was Spain. And even in the 1930s, Spanish peasants were still talking about manticores, like, attacking livestock. Shannon, I see the look on your face. You're like, is this going where I think it's going? Yes, because the manticore myth in Spain kind of evolved into this, like, cryptid that attacks livestock and is very very spooky well guess what in latin america which was primarily settled by spanish people colonized the appropriate word is colonized i'm settled as a uh, american history book term um colonized by spanish people it really makes sense that perhaps the chupacabra out of which originally is from puerto rico which is a very spanish place um yeah so is the myth of the manticore the origin of the myth of the chupacabra oh shit 
Also, I love uh, the game where it's like with every alleged chupacabra sighting, it's like, is it a chupacabra or is it a coyote with mange? Oh, I mean, ab- absolutely super fair. But I, I just love, I, I love um, just sort of the idea of the chupacabra. Just like this, this spooky ass thing that just sucks the blood out of cows and sheep and stuff. Very, it's, very yeah. spooky. It's very spooky. It's very spooky. But also the manticore, I will say, um, just to kind of round it out here, the original manticore did not have wings. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, Shannon. That is mostly a modern addition. I'm but disappointed I, in that. But I think it looks scarier with wings, and I actually prefer the mod- more modern version of the manticore anyway. So I'm kind of with you on that one. Yeah. Like, just having a scorpion tail isn't, like, the spookiest thing in the world, you know? Yeah, no, it's, like, just a scorpion tail. I mean, I hate it, but I but can the, deal with it. But the bat wings really add something. Yeah, it's, like, the bat wings are also, I think, the thing that makes it, like, oddly sexual. Because I find that there's kind of, like, a weird sexualized angle to a lot of Chimera. Yeah, yeah. Because it is yeah. like this weird mashup of like, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into that. But anytime I see Chimera coming up in myths, there always, to me, feels like there's this weird layer of sexual tension in it. And it just freaks me out. Yeah, it's like, why did you why did you give it a human face? Yes! It's like, did you give it a human face so you could like feel better about wanting to fuck it? Maybe I'm wrong. But these the, I... These, these are the important questions to ask. And I'm sure some for some furry in the community out there because there are like fantasy furries i know this yeah. much is true from the centaur episode from your close personal experience i'm just kidding from my close um, personal experience no no no. but there are like fantasy furries out there who's like personas are sort of mythical creatures so i would I would imagine that someone out there is serving Manticore somewhere yeah. on tum- somewhere on Tumblr. Surely, somewhere on Tumblr there is some very erotic Manticore literatica. Uh, yeah. So, okay, Nick. Well, before we get into Enki, if people want to get in touch with us, how could they do that? Okay, so we've actually made it very, very easy. So what you're going to want to remember is Wands and Fronds Pod, because if you wanted to email us, you could do so at wandsandfrondspod at gmail.com. That is also a handle for our Instagram, Wands and Fronds Pod. Easy fucking peasy. But also, if you really, really, really wanted to support this podcast, which is not free to make, as we keep reminding you, you could go on over to Patreon, get some really fun bonus content, see our smiling faces every single week, and you could do that at Wands and Fronds Pod. So yeah, patreon.com slash Wands and Fronds Pod. Rate, review, subscribe, go give us some stars, write about how great you think we are. You guys know how to be good podcast listeners. We love you. Okay, Nick, this one goes out to you though. Because I'm covering a Sumerian deity. We're going to be in ancient Mesopotamia. We're talking about Enki. So Enki is also known as like Ea, Enkig, Nidamud, Ninsiku. And he's the Sumerian god of wisdom, fresh water, intelligence, 
trickery and mischief, crafts, magic, exorcism, healing, creation, virility, fertility, and art. A man of many talents. Truly a multi-hyphenate given Beyonce a run for her money. So a lot of times we get these pictures of him and he's shown with like a long beard, wearing a cap with horns, long robes, and like ascending the mountain of the sunrise. And a lot of times in Sumerian texts, he's like portrayed very sexually because there's this like big association between the life-giving properties of his semen and the nature of fresh water from the Abzu. So the Abzu is like a really important place in Mesopotamian lore, right? So this is supposed to be an ocean that's underneath the earth. And Babylon is said to have been built on top of the Abzu. And we all know Babylon is like a very important ancient city. So Enki though has a lot of like strong associations, right? With magic and spellcraft. And he's a really been like a really popular deity for seers, diviners, uh, and also priests who specialize in exorcism. So he has a lot of like strong associations to like ancient Wu as well, which I love. And of course, like being a patron of like the arts and crafts, he's really associated with quote unquote, like civilization, which is where you get a lot of like the comparisons to like Prometheus. And he is sometimes also really portrayed as like a trickster spirit. So he has the ability to resurrect the dead as well. Like there's he's kind of all over the place, but you know what? He's a jack of all trades, master of none, but still always better than a master of one. Am oh, I right? Absolutely. And I just want to say like, it's, it's giving. It's giving. And so initially like he was primarily like the Sumerian deity of fresh water and a patron of the city of Eridu, which was considered by the Mesopotamians, the first city established at the beginning of the world. And we've talked about Eridu before the first city. And here Enki presides over the Abzu, but also not just like the Abzu itself, but also like the mystical parts of this, like it's an ocean under the water. It's a primordial marsh. But this is also where like the city of Eridu and life in general was thought to have come from. So he has this minister Ismud and him and Enki have like assorted creatures at their service, uh, including giants, demons, both good demons and bad demons, and other mystical beings like mermen and mermaids. Um, <laughs> so it's like all over the place, like every magical creature and also the seven sages, the Abgal, live with Enki like in his palace. So we first see Enki coming up in literature in the dynastic period 3A, which is from 2600 to 2350 BCE. And he's really established as like an important god of the Akkadians by around 2400 BCE who knew him as Ea. So Enki is the son of Anu, the sky god in Sumerian and Akkadian mythology, and also the son of Apsu. Uh, so Apsu is like the primordial father in Babylonian texts. So we're going to kind of like go back and forth a little bit between Sumerian and Akkadian, but this is like talking about the same deity. And his mother in the mythology is the goddess Namu, a primordial mother goddess who gives birth to the earth and the heavens. And he is the husband of Ninhursag, and they have their they have several sons, uh, Asur Lui, which is the god of magical knowledge, Enbilulu, the god of canals and dikes, <laughs> and the human sage Adapa. 
And most importantly for a lot of lore, uh, Marduk, who is the king of the gods. Marduk is kind of like a really big deal, which we'll talk about right now. So according to the Babylonian Enuma Elish, which was written in 1100 BCE, Enki is like the oldest of the first gods. He's a firstborn. And at the beginning of time, like it is in so many creation myths, like everything is just like chaos, right? There's, it's all undifferentiated, just like swirling, fucking crazy chaos. And that like, out of that, we originally get the first separation of Apsu, which is like the male principle uh, personified by fresh water, and Tiamat, which is the female principle defined by salt water. And when we're talking about male and female, it's not necessarily boys and girls. It's really like the creative and the like the creative external energy and like the creative internal energy. Like it's just different creation energies here. And so Apsu and Tiamat. I also, give... I just, I love that the um, the Mesopotamian kinder binary is saltwater and freshwater. Right. Uh, which means you can boil it down to crocodiles because um, they go in both. So Apsu and Tiamat, though, of course, uh, these like energies give birth to the younger gods. But these younger gods, because everything's still kind of swirling chaos, have nothing to do. And so they're just fucking around and basically being fucking loud, annoying kids. And they distract Absu and they interrupt his sleep. So he talks to his vizier and he decides, I'm just going to fucking kill him. I can't get any rest. And Tiamat, being like the sweet mommy, overhears this discussion and is like fucking horrified. So she tells her son Enki. And Enki is like, oh, fuck, this is not good. Got to come up with a game plan, right? So he, like, thinks and thinks and thinks, and he has all these ideas, but he's like, really, at the end of the day, the best one is, like, I got to put my father to sleep, and then I got to kill him. Because every origin story up until, like, fucking Christianity, basically, is, like, younger gods kill the older gods. Like, that's a pretty common theme we see, and this is yeah, probably it's, one it's, of the first ones. It's really, like, echoes of, like, Zeus and Kronos. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the problem is, though, Tiamat never thought that this was going to end in her kids fucking killing her husband partner. So she freaks out a little bit and she puts together an army of demons and monsters, uh, which is led by her consort and champion, Kingu. And this army uh, of the older gods, like, really is like beating back Enki and the younger gods in battle. Like each time they meet, the younger gods are driven back and they start to get like really desperate. It's giving us like Titans and Olympians here. But at this point, like they're, they're like losing hope. Everything is so sad. This is like the low point of the film and Murdoch, uh, Enki's son comes up with this idea, right? So he steps forward and he's like, Hey, look, gods, if you let me be your king, I will lead you to victory. And this is actually super clutch because at this point, there was like no general overseeing the younger gods, right? So each god was taking a turn at a command. And you have to think that that's like fucking with your strategy at a certain point. So they're like, okay, fuck it. So Marduk is elected the king and he meets Kingu in single like one-on-one -on -one combat and fucking owns him. And then he shoots Tiamat with an arrow, basically his grandma, and it splits her in two. And so from her eyes, she's like weeping and her tears become the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. And then her body is used by Marduk to fashion the earth. 
And then Kingu and the other gods who'd encouraged Tiamat's war are executed. Kingu's body is used to create human beings. And so Marduk consults with Enki on all of these things. And, you know, because Enki's his dad. And so Enki is credited sort of as like the co-creator of the world and life. And there are other like creation myths, but Enki is always like pretty fucking clutch. And then we got, we get this other story in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where Enki crafts humans out of clay so they can do work for the gods. And the supreme god here, Enlil, attempts to destroy Enki's newly created humans with a flood because their endless noise keeps him from sleeping. There is a theme here. There people, absolutely seems to be a theme here. People need to get some fucking rest. They're like, I swear to God, if you interrupt my eight, I'm ending you. So Enki sees Enlil's plans and he um, instructs a sage named Atrahasis to build an ark to help to help humanity escape the destruction. Doesn't that sound familiar? That does sound really familiar. Uh, there's also a story, speaking of stories that sound familiar, uh, in The Descent of Anana, he basically works to rescue his daughter or his niece, depending on the translation, after she's killed by her sister, Ereshkigal, uh, by sending two clever demons to trick the queen of the dead into giving them Anana's corpse. So he's shown in the story, uh, Anana and the God of Wisdom, also as the professor of the meh, which I think is kind of funny because Met is the laws and powers that are concerned with all life and the gifts of civilization, but it's called the Met, M-E-H. Um, so <laughs> the Met is like the possession of like the gods alone. And he allows Anana to take it from him when he gets fucking drunk. So we're, we're also getting some of this like Bacchus pan energy here. And so he sends a bunch of forces to her to like recapture the Met and return them to him. And it seems like she gets away with this treasure like awfully easily, right? But in this, like they're kind of like showing him as the father that would do anything for his daughter, even if it's not the wisest thing. So it's kind of like he's half-heartedly trying to like get back at her, but he's like, that's my girl. Uh, and then we also have this like tr trickster aspect of him, right? So in this way, he like kind of, he's like teaching lessons. There's always like a cosmic lesson in his trickery, even if it doesn't like initially make sense. So like in this case, he allows himself to like get drunk and lets Anana have the meh. But also we see like in the Epic of Gilgamesh, he consents to the death of Enkidu, who is the best friend of Gilgamesh, the hero of the story. And Enkidu and Gilgamesh have like just gotten back from like, another victory when Anana, also known as Ishtar in the story, Ayo, uh, and she tries to seduce the hero and Gilgamesh, like listing the many other lovers she's, uh, she's had who met with bad ends. Uh, so he refuses her. So she's like, yo, yo, Gilgamesh, let's get down to Bone Town. And Gilgamesh is like, dude, everyone you fuck dies. No, thank you. Um, so for raising his hand against a God, though, what happens here is like, so Anana sends her sister, Ereshkigal's husband, Gugalana, who is the bull of the heaven, to destroy Gilgamesh's realm, and Enkidu kills him, right? So basically, she's mad that she's not getting laid, so she sends her, like, brother-in-law to kill Gilgamesh and destroy his realm. And Enkidu, being like, Gilgamesh's bro, is like, yeah, no, kills him. But Enkidu killed a god. So he has to die. And Enki 
is like, okay, I mean, like this, these are the rules. Even though he knows that Anana caused the problems, he knows that humans can't like basically get big heads or they'll challenge the god. But the most important thing here is that Enki realizes that Enkidu's death is going to introduce Gilgamesh to loss, which is going to lead him to an exploration of the meaning of life, which makes him a deeper and more complete individual. So it is this thing where it's like he allows bad things to happen, but he has a good reason. And all of the stories about Enki like seem to agree that he's like a friend of humanity. Like that's where the Prometheus, like the Prometheus uh correlations come in right it's like he makes these decisions that might seem heartless but it's all to make humanity better which at the end of the day is kind of like oh that's sweet um so again it's like we're seeing things here similar to like poseidon prometheus fuck lucifer i'm, I'm, I'm getting i'm getting odin vibes too. yeah odin vibes loki vibes we're getting like Demeter with her relationship with Persephone like there's so much wrapped up in Justin Enki so like you know I think he's a great candidate for a patron deity if you're someone who's into the Mesopotamian pantheon because of course you can like call upon him for all sorts of stuff like he's I think like in the vein of people like Odin or Jupiter or Zeus like kind of being someone that does a little bit of a lot of stuff so he can be like a good patron deity but it is hard to like narrow down like a specialty quote unquote because really like it's all over the place we've got 6500 years plus of stories about this guy so i think that if this is one that you're called to like this is this is an instance where i'm like you really need to just like follow your intuition on offerings and magical workings because there's not like one size fits all it's not like hecate where it's like put some keys on your altar she'll love it it's like, he'll love a lot of things, but I think offerings need to be really personal too. So, you know, I think that um, if he calls to you, trust yourself. We've also got to remember how much like Sumerian mythology has been lost, which is another problem with coming up like with a single tool. But there was a book that kept coming up in my research um, called Sumerian Magic, Enki, God of Magic, Wisdom, Life, and Replenishment that I think seems like it'd be a good one to check out. Um, there are, of course, like lots of people online that have advice on how to work with him. But I think with Sumerian deities in particular, just because they're so ancient, I'm like, you really need to do some meditating and like getting in touch with yourself because there's no, like, there's no right answer for something like this. Not that there really is, I think, with most deities, but in particular with deities that can literally like, that have correlations to like tens of other deities we've talked about. So anyway, um, I use like uh, the World History Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, lots of fun Reddit threads. Um, and of course, like there's a lot of quotes from like the various Sumerian epics in here. So that's Mesopotam an intro. <laughs> Mesopotamia Reddit is cool. Mesopotamia Reddit is cool and entirely overwhelming. But that, I mean, it was a fun one, but it's like, I was talking to Nick about this beforehand. I'm like, it's really hard with Sumerian and like ancient Mesopotamian deities to like boil it down. Cause I feel like I could, we could talk about him. There could be an entire podcast about him because those are like three very abridged versions of Enki stories that all have incredibly different flavors. So 
Well, no, and it's like, you know, with all of this really ancient mythology too, it's like we definitely, I remember, talked about Inanna during Mermaids. Yeah. Like, the Mesopotamian gods are really all over the place. Um, yeah, but it's fun. And I do love that uh, he he really is like a magical, like a magician's deity too. I always just love that when there's a deity that like is really into magic. But no, also- when, you, when you said that like, Babylon was like built on like a wellspring of like the uh you know like the the world ocean or whatever primordial marsh is my favorite description I've seen for it I was like okay where is Babylon I mean I know generally where it is but I was like which country specifically is Babylon in it's in Iraq yeah so I was like I was like oh so we we can't visit there right yeah not really um, um and, and it's fun. I just I love I love deities like this because they're so complex and like I I also just really appreciate how much deities, even once they've been parsed out into different deities, like we're like so many of these things have been going on in like human storytelling forever, which I think is the thing that makes like deity worship and deity work so powerful is because it's like even if you don't necessarily think of them as like sky daddies, it's like there's this tulpa effect where so many people have poured so much energy into worshiping these energies for millennia. There's power in that. Like, even if you don't think of them as like tangible create, like tangible people like beings, the energy poured into these, like these stories is massive. And that is like, that's some fucking power right there. So, thank you. Thank you. So, we're very close to the bitter end. And before we let everyone go, it's time for the tarot scope. So, we are back in proper ones and fronds form this week. And I'm giving some bad news. Woo! Back to normal. Okay. So, this week I drew Torrance. For the taroscope and then oh we my got God. I love the Taurus kitty because it looks like it's like reaching up for a scratching post. It re- it really does. It really does. Uh and also it has the little horns, which absorbs. I love I love this zodiac deck. Like this is such a good addition to the taroscope. Um but for you guys this week I drew the six of cups reversed. Which Ooh. you know little little dragon tarot here this one's got instead of a dragon it's um it's a viking ship with a dragon front the mast thing. yeah um it's so not mast th- what's the word for that googling it hold on you keep going and i'll i'll figure out what that word is so six of cups reversed is indicating that you're maybe having this very intense nostalgia moment which you know a little nostalgia here and there is fine but because of this placement, it's like you're you're maybe choosing to live in the past or maybe even fantasizing and kind of living in this place of like, gosh, I wish it was still the good old days, which I know it, you know, I know we've had some time off, but I feel like I gave a very similar reading to this recently. And really the message here is pretty clear. You cannot live in a fantasy 
you cannot live in the fantasy. And in certain respects, it's almost kind of selfish to be living in a fantasy instead of dealing with your real life. Mm, tea. So, so it would be, it would behoove you to um, come back down to earth. I always think of like the reverse six of cups as like, don't drunk text your ex. <laughs> don't drunk text your ex. Yeah, we're, the good old days are not coming back. The good old days are not coming back. They and also weren't as good as you like to think they were. No, you're 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 romanticizing things. So, but all of that to say, NVD, you know, I feel like with Taurus, like Taurus uh, really is such a headstrong bunch of folks. Oh, they're not going to fucking listen to us. We'll they're tell them. Listen. They're we'll not going to listen. Yeah. And they're going to text their ex. And then they're going to have a meltdown. Yeah. It's called a figurehead on the front of a ship, by the way. Oh, good. Yes. Uh, this is dragon figurehead. Thank you, Shannon. Well, to all of you scorpion tail manticore bitches out there, what do we say, Shannon? Oh my god. To all of you chimera horrifying witches. Blessed be bitches. Blessed be bitches. Goodbye. Bye now. Um, my, I mean, so Stephanie, her husband, Alex, worked on this, like, uh, B-horror movie that we went and saw. It was at, like, Fantastic Fest called Chupug Cabra. Oh, no. Yeah. It's exactly what you imagine it to be.